everyone. Welcome back to another episode of TPA Tidbits, a Sentinel Pension podcast. My name is Melissa Torito, and I am the host for this podcast. And today, we've got a special guest. His, uh, not his cameo. What's it when you make a second appearance? Take two. <laughs> uh, Casey Melanson, who is a part of our team. He is our Senior Manager of Business Operations. And let me just be honest, he's way smarter than I will ever be. So... Thanks, Casey. Thank you. <laughs> and he doesn't really like me when I compliment him too much. So uh, one of the things that I wanted to talk about today uh, that we really hadn't discussed, and and it's really mainly due to the timing, is common Form 5500 errors. So the Form 5500 is an informational return. Um, side note, it is storming outside. So if you hear any background noise, that's what it is. But the Form 5500 is an informational return that has to be filed uh, with the IRS, even though there's no taxes due, right, Casey? Right. I feel like we get a, a lot of questions like, why do I have to file this form? Yeah, people don't really understand what the Form 5500 is for their retirement plan. Yeah, So, and you know what else confuses people? That anyone can look at the 5500. Yes, it is public knowledge. It is public knowledge, which is kind of crazy. <laughs> so, anyway, so what we tell them is, we don't really know why. But it has to be filed. There are some compliance-related questions on there, so I think it's one of the checks and balances that both the IRS and Department of Labor, like both of these agencies, look at the return. Right. Okay. So we just wanted to go over some common errors, and I will say that the vast majority of plan sponsors, if you have somebody preparing your 5500, the 5500, in theory, should be accurate. And you really shouldn't have to review it. It's, it's it's just like if you pay someone to prepare your tax return. Do you really look at your tax return after you have a CPA do it? I do not. You do not? No. Neither do I. But our tax partner does my tax return. So good golly, I hope it's right. Um, there's just a few things that you want to take a look at. None of this is super duper technical. A lot of it is really basic. It's just that if you get a notice from the Department of Labor, it's most of the time, it's an easy fix. Right. It's just a pain. It is. Yeah. You got to respond. You got to send it to them. Send all your backup documentation. Respond X, Y, and Z by a certain date. And then sometimes you never hear from them again. Right. And you just never get another notice. Right. And in my opinion, no news is good news from that. So the very first thing is that if there is a change to just the overall basic plan information. So... If the plan sponsor's name's changed, if the plan name has changed for whatever reason, let's say you're going through a restatement, mergers and acquisitions, if you, the first part of the form lists all that information, right? right? So then if you file a 2019 form with Sentinel Pension, but then we file a 2020 form with Falk and Winkler, and we don't notate that there's a change, what does that, what do they, what do they think? Those up the powers that be. They're not going back and, and comparing prior years, so it's automatically going to kick out a notice. Either this is a new plan that you didn't mark as a first year return, so they're kicking out a notice of why you didn't file a prior return, or something along those lines. Yeah, and the other thing is that they might think that Sentinel Pension didn't file a return for 2020, and that's when you get, as opposed to just like, hey, we noticed that something was off, you might get a penalty notice for that. Right, and those penalties are awfully steep. Sometimes. Yeah, and you get it, and you're like, oh, my God, it's $10,000. You know, we filed the return. So 
I would say you probably get more of like a request for information notice if you haven't notated in section four, because that is the section on the form that you use to say, hey, this information is different than the prior year. But I really do feel like if you have a change of EIN, and most of the time that's if you sold your company and somebody took it over. Hey, we have a, um, we have a live audience, by the way, too. Scott Lazarus in the background. <laughs> Our, our recording space, we're short on recording space. I was going to be like, Scott, why else would you change an EIN? Mergers and acquisitions? Really? I mean, why would your EIN change? Not even paying attention. Not even paying attention. Do you know why anybody would have a change in EIN? Other than like if they bought a company? Just in g generally speaking, most people would probably structure it as an asset purchase. So they're not really buying the EIN or the stock of the other entity. They're setting up a new entity and then buying all of those assets. So it's, though it's, they're buying a company, it's effectively a new company with a new EIN. That sounded really smart. Yeah, that was pretty good. <laughs> and that's why he's a partner, folks. <laughs> so anyway, but regardless, I can tell you that if you've had a change of EIN and or, you know, what that situation Scott just talked about, you've restated the document, you've updated the EIN there, so you're supposed to update it on the 5500. And if you don't notate that it's been updated, you will get a penalty notice because that's typically, the EIN is typically what they're... I say this like I'm looking at 5500s and I'm part of the Department of Labor. I'm going by what I think. Yeah, the, they, they're they following that EIN, making sure returns filed every year, and then oh, all of a sudden one's not filed by the deadline, that notice and that penalty is going out the door. Pretty sure part of an automatic system. Absolutely. I think it's just, you know, generated. So let's let's move into, let's say you no longer have a plan. Right? So you truly should not be continuing to file 5500s. What do you absolutely have to mark on that form? Once all the assets are out of the plan, you have to mark on the form that this is the final 5500. So that way they know not to expect any future 5500s associated with this plan or this EIM. Right. And we say when we say mark on the form, it's literally a checkbox. Yep. And that checkbox, if not checked, can be a, it can be a pain. So uh, just like Casey alluded to, the first return, if you start a plan, you need to indicate on the 5500 that it's the first return. And if you've terminated your plan or if you've transferred, I, I keep going back to the mergers because we're seeing a lot of that. So, you know, I buy Casey's company, his company merges into my plan. He's still going to have to file a final 5500 showing that um, I set out. Scott, you can't use your calculator. I'm sorry. <laughs> All right. So moving down, I'm just kind of following the form 5500. The asset information that's reporting the balances and the it's basically a balance sheet and an income statement kind of combined into one. So you've got that information. That's pretty straightforward. I, I would not. There's really nothing in there. I would say, unless you like have a negative end of year balance or something really wacky that's going to trigger something. Or if this year's beginning balance doesn't tie to last year's beginning balance, that'll kind of throw a wrench into it sometimes. Yes. Um, and then your participant count is also very important. You know, I don't think people understand who is included in that participant count. Anybody who is currently eligible for the plan or prior terminated employees that still have a balance within the plan are included in the participant count. And do people that are currently employed actually have to be participating in the plan to be included in that count? No. Correct, right? So sometimes you can have um, 
you know, maybe 50 people participating in the plan, but you have 150 people that are employed and then you have 50 people with, uh, that are terminated with balances. And now you've got whatever I, those numbers to add them up, Casey, but you've got well over the number of people that in your brain that you are actually remitting deposits for in the plan. And you need an audit on the plan because of that. So, um, but that is a black, that's black and white when it comes to that audit threshold. Had somebody call me last week. They're going to be under the audit count for 2021. And they wanted to know if there was a way to like backdate it or something retroactively go back and do some magic in 2020. And I'm like, look, there's not a lot that's in black and white. That is about as black and white as it can get in terms of who you're reporting on the 5,500 and when you need an audit. Okay. So there's just a lot of more questions I feel like on the 5,500. So there's a whole section, part five of compliance questions. Which one would you think is the most important question in that section, Casey? I would say there's two. Okay. The late deposits port question yep. and then the fidelity bond question. Those were my two of my points too, Casey. Oh, we make such a great team. Okay, so um, the late deposit, it, it literally says, was there a failure to transmit the plan any participant contributions within the specified time period? You answer yes or no. So what are we reporting? It's, it's a yes or no, and then it's an amount. What amount are we reporting? Uh, the amount that was late into the plan. Right. So this is what I don't love about this compliance. There's not a, so it's part five, question 10A. I feel like there should be another little question that basically says, did you self-correct? Right. Or, and then did you file the form 5330? If necessary. Or was a 5330 filed? Right. Pretty simple. Yeah. We should actually create the 5500. We will, uh, we'll see if we can run that up the DOL flagpole. But, um, sometimes we have seen that if you report that, which you should, then another automated notice goes out to the plan sponsor, letting them know that this is on the 5500. It's possible. I think the automated notice might say that you have to file with the voluntary correction program, unless you can self-correct. And then you basically, again, even if you've taken care of it, have to respond. You have to respond and submit all your data and go back to the deposit and show them how you calculated lost earnings. And that could be a whole nother podcast episode. So you want to make sure that you are notating that if it needs to be notated. I know it's a little freaky to mark yes on a compliance question, but we, I sat through a seminar with this Department of Labor ex-agent or ex-Department of Labor agent who audited 5500s, audited 401k plans. And when you sign that 5500 right above that signature line, it says that under penalties of perjury and other penalties set forth in the instructions, I declare that I have examined this return and report. So if you sign that and you know that you had late deposits and you either didn't tell your TPA or your TPA didn't report it, which they should, then you could have a potential issue if you get pulled by a Department of Labor audit, because that's really what they look for. Right. Right. Did I scare everyone? Good. Probably so. Okay. Casey looks a little nervous. <laughs> All right. Talk about the fidelity bond, Casey. So the fidelity bond has to be in place to cover 10% of plan assets, and it's just basically a protection for the plan if there's any fraud theft, dishonesty against the plan. It is, it's an insurance plan for your retirement plan. So one of the things that I always, when I started working here, I was like, how, you know, so let's take a plan that's at Nationwide. 
Right. The plan sponsor cannot issue a distribution and right. nothing in that and for that particular record keeper. So nothing can actually go out of the plan without our approval. So how would fraud happen? So potentially the person who is um, making the contributions into the plan can just stop making those contributions and put them off somewhere else. Or what we're seeing a lot more nowadays is cybersecurity yep. and issues with hacking and identity theft and th things along those lines. Yep. Yeah. So it can be kind of, um, so you really want the bond. It's not, it's not super costly no. to have it and it protects a certain amount of assets. Now the, the bond is reported on the 5,500. There's also fiduciary liability insurance that is not necessarily required. Correct. And that one is way more expensive than I would read the fine print, as I've been told. But you do want to report this on the 5,500. Again, it's not going to necessarily disqualify the plan if you don't have one. So startup plans, a lot of times, it's kind of hard to get a bond because you don't have any assets. So if you file your first year return without a bond, I wouldn't go, I wouldn't freak out. I would just get a bond as soon as you can once assets are in the plan. Right. Okay. Also, it's another great way for people that maybe aren't qualified to do your retirement plan to look at your 5500 and call you and tell you that you've done something wrong yeah, as their sales pitch. Right. Try and scare you into moving services or something along those lines. Right. Um, okay. So the last thing that I want to mention, and this is just for a handful of plans, is the owner-only plans. And we keep running into this, okay? So most of the time when you have an owner-only plan, there's not really a TPA. Right. There's no compliance testing needed, um, very minimal reporting. So a lot of times the financial advisor is taking the lead on that and, you know, running the show. Yeah. And you can get a plan document. Let's say you set it up with Vanguard or Fidelity. A lot of times it's a four, four or five page plan document because you don't have any employees. What is the key? To this, Casey. Once the assets reach over $250,000, you have to start filing the 5500 Or even if the assets never reach the $250,000 threshold, but you decide to terminate the plan, you have to file a final 5500 even for the solo 401k plan. So Casey has organically become our solo 401k delinquent filer because we've had about three instances where that's happened and it's happened Every time, it's got to be two or three years, sometimes five, yeah. sometimes five. And so this is not a uh, knock against financial advisors. Some are paying attention to it and some are not. Really, the financial advisor's role is to manage your investments in within the plan, right? And so I'm sure there's some sort of agreement that you, as the owner, needs to make sure that the 5500 is being filed. So we have actually, and I would say this is kind of within the past four years, we have actually engaged with more owner-only plans. We put them on our document. They pay us to make sure that the 5500 is filed, especially when they've kind of been burned, right? They're like, okay, that's fine. How much do we need to pay you? You know, it's not very expensive. It's a peace of mind for them. So we're, we're setting up a lot more of the owner-only plans. Yeah, especially in the last four years. Yeah, that's kind of a safeguard. So that's worked out um, really well. And then truthfully, if an owner-only plan starts and you have this, you know, quote-unquote, solo K document, and you hire an employee, you're no longer an owner-only plan. And so all the rules change, right? So it's just, again, it doesn't seem like you need somebody to look at it, but I think that it's very beneficial. I think that's spot on. Well, thank you, Casey. <laughs> all right. Anything else, Casey? No, I think that's it. All right. Well, appreciate you. It's always more fun whenever I have a guest on these particular podcasts. Yeah somebody to talk to. Normally, I'm just looking at Lainey. <laughs> 
and uh, we appreciate our live audience in the background for for with the sound in. effects, <laughs> right? And um, sorry about the thunder and lightning. This is a worse storm than we saw with a tropical storm Claudette. Um, so anyway, if you want if you want to reach out to us, check out our website www.choosesentinel.com. It's got all of our contact information on it, and we appreciate everyone listening. Until next time, thank you.